0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. In this episode, we welcome British animation stalwarts Peter Furman and Daniel Postgate. Hi there, kids. Ben Mitchell here, welcoming you to the 60th episode of the podcast, a diamond anniversary of sorts but myself and Steve Henderson. Wouldn't you say, Steve?
1: I'm stood here with my diamond crown, wearing my diamond rings. I'm all diamonded up ready for this special anniversary episode.
0: And very fetching you are, too. Thank you very much. How are you doing, alright? I'm well. How are you? Okay. Animation-wise, everything is uh, spiffing, and I have no idea what I'm working on, because I don't speak the language. It's for a South American studio. So... I think it's going well. Right. No one's like yelled at me in Portuguese yet, but I have no idea what is actually happening. I just have to follow the storyboard and the directions really uh, closely. But it's a bit like you know how like the magic roundabout when they brought it to England and the guy who had it just made up his own story. Eric Thompson. Yeah. That's basically what I'm doing in my head to this uh, <laughs> series. So maybe I'll 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 put it I'll I'll put myself forward to do like the English translation. Take these sacred Brazilian legends and then just make you know my own goofy stories to set to them. I think it would be fun.
1: That'd be interesting to watch. I hope you do. You're going to have to do that now. And you are well. Yes, uh, the Manchester Animation Festival has announced its lineup for the second year. We've been working hard on that. So if I've seemed a little bit kind of dazed and confused in previous podcasts, or when I say previous podcasts, I mean from podcast number one, right the way up to now. (laughs) I have no excuse, really. Um, Yeah, we've we've announced uh, the lineup of uh, this year's uh, festival. So, you know, we've, we've got a, a big a plethora of, of people to, to entertain the, the masses in Manchester uh, in November. So uh, in the lineup, we've got uh, Peter Lord and David Sproxton. Uh, we're going to be giving them the Fellowship Award. Uh, we've got Lupus Films coming up to show Ethel and Ernest Uh, Foley Marge uh, will be there with Phantom Boy Uh, Blue Zoo are going to be showing off their uh, virtual reality short Hoodoo Which gets its premiere at the festival We have also got a previous podcast guest, Chris Shepard Coming to the festival too to show a retrospective of his work He's actually shown me his his new film Which is pretty good If you like Dad's Dead, uh, you'll absolutely love it
0: This is the uh, follow-up It is a sequel of sorts Hmm. Which is sort of a rarity in the short film world but it's kind of nice. It is nice, yeah. I think that's how a lot of people kind of came upon Chris Shepard's work, Mm. was the original Dad's Dead. I'm intrigued about going back to that world.
1: Yeah. The other things that we've got going on at Manchester are a panel on women in animation, basically on the representation of women in animation, something which we've explored in the podcast in the past, uh, but it's going to be a nice, lively debate, hopefully, uh, about how women are portrayed in animation. Uh, In Your Own Time is a, uh, a panel where uh, Ian McKinnon, uh, uh, Peter Lord, David Sproxton, and Mike Mort will be discussing, uh, well, basically, making films in your own time and, and where it will lead. And, you know, it's, it's 25 years since The Sandman, so Ian McKinnon will be presenting that. Uh, Mike Mort obviously did some fantastic work with uh, Chuck Steele. That's gone on to be a feature film. And uh, Adman, you know, they did something on the kitchen table and look where that led. We'll also be having look-backs with the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation. They'll be bringing some of the, the puppets from uh, Ray Harryhausen. And uh, we'll be looking back at uh, Georgi Kvaznay. He's a Hungarian Cold War animator. Uh, they found all this stuff which he uh, created in secret, I believe. And uh, it's been revealed and some pretty you know far-out stuff there. And then there's a, a panel, another panel discussion called uh, Book Your Ideas Up, where we uh, look at the latest animation books. Do you know anyone who's written an animation book recently, Ben, that might be on that panel?
0: I'm drawing a complete blank. <laughs> Frankly, it's a marketplace that needs to... Be- oh, wait a minute! <laughs> so I guess I'll be I'll be chatting at, at Manchester, Ben. Mm, yeah. With some other animation book writers.
1: Yeah, uh, Mark Collington, Professor Paul Wells, and Dr. Sam Moore, so, who was on one of the Encounters podcasts, so yeah, they've got some books mm-hmm. out as well, which should be good. And then uh, film screening at the festival, we've got The Red Turtle. We've got Floyd Norman, An Animated Life, which is a a documentary about uh, Floyd Norman, as you might expect. Uh, (laughs) We'll be screening Ethel and Ernest, uh, Phantom Boy and Clash of the Titans, and a few other bits and bobs that we've not uh, announced yet. And then obviously there's the short film competition. And then Squiggly will be doing a lot of stuff as well. So we'll be there with uh, the uh, Squiggly screening, which was very popular last year. You and Laura Beth put together.
0: I believe we're doing another squiggly quiz, as uh, as tradition
1: dictates. Of course, Ben, we'll be doing another squiggly quiz. Uh, We'll get a a, a table groaning with animation prizes, and then an audience groaning at the answers. Um, And then we'll be doing the Squiggly podcast live. We'll be doing a couple of those and uh, talking to some of the filmmakers there, maybe some of the guests. And if they don't turn up, then it will just be me and you talking a load of rubbish for an hour and a half, which... uh, I mean tickets should sell out in a second if that's the case. Ooh
0: ooh audience informed improv session. They can shout out things and we can vamp. Do a little on the fly skets like that old Clive Anderson show. It'll be delightful.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um that that's that's like one of those nightmares that I uh, that I frequently have audience participation. So this is,
0: you can pick up on the this chemistry already. This is a preview. <laughs> of
1: what Oh, God. I'm meant to be selling tickets, Ben. (laughs) Yeah, and Joanna Quinn will be doing a a live drawing workshop as well, which was very popular last year. Um, That's a ticketed event, so people have to get tickets for that. Yeah, so people can go on the website, manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk. And find out more, we'll be updating stuff as well, so sign up to the newsletter, go on to the Twitter page, at MCR Animation, and go on Facebook to keep fully informed with what's going on, and to buy tickets, and uh, plan your your visits, and get hotels, and all that kind of good stuff. It's all on the website there. But you've been enjoying festivals recently, haven't you, Ben? Uh, People will have heard the uh, hours of podcasting that you've been doing from Encounters.
0: Well, it's very much a sort of festival uh, season at mm-hmm. the moment. Uh, it's a pretty busy month, uh, especially here in the UK. I mean, the, the tricky thing with encounters is it's simultaneous with Ottawa. Like, this year's Ottawa would have been a lovely one to have been able to go to. Uh, I was Bristol-bound, as uh, as has been the case for the last few years in a row. But Ottawa's definitely one of the ones that I uh, hope to tick off soon. Mm. That being said, we had a squiggly correspondent over there for us uh, who was able to do a really good write-up about what they had on offer there. Uh, it was courtesy of Andy Jewell. And it did seem like a pretty uh, spectacular event. They sort of pulled out all the stops because it was their 40th edition, which looked interesting. Very different kind of selection, actually, from what Encounters had, mm. which was nice to see in a sense because it was like sort of two new batches of what's out there and you know to get two different sides of uh, industry happenings and that kind of thing uh, I thought was kind of interesting. But yeah, lots of uh, insight from the filmmakers themselves if you listen back to the last uh, few podcasts, we had our Little Encounters mini-Sode series, which is becoming a sort of festival tradition, I expect. I hope we're going to do that again with Click, because uh, we did that last year and it worked quite well. It's a nice thing, actually, to sort of get out of festivals. I think it sort of cuts through the treacle in a way, because it really gets a direct line from the animators to the audience, which I'm uh, I'm always very keen on. And the thing is also the venue at the Watershed, which is a perfectly fine venue, but the capacity is a little limited. So it's nice to know that more people get to hear these Q&A sessions. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that was also a pretty great festival. And we also did the last episode of Intimate Animation, of course, had Veronica and Manuela, who were also part of the Encounters official selection. So it's been an Encounters extravaganza. That's a good podcast.
1: The last intimate animation podcast. Ivan's Need is one of my top 10 films of the last year. And it was really nice hearing those two describe uh, in quite some detail the journey with the film. Like this, as it gets into porn festivals (laughs) and all kinds of stuff, and describing where the ideas came from.
0: No, it's been fun, and uh, so we're going to see. I'm going to go for six, and then see how we feel, and then maybe go for ten, or maybe do a different series. Uh, We'll see what the the um, vibe is out there. Shall we say? So yeah, and Ivan's need. I believe that was at uh, Manchester last year, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it stood out. Shall we say? And if anyone has a chance to
1: see it, they must definitely see it.
0: So yes, Encounter's very interesting. I think that um, I've certainly I've been checking out some of the uh, the Ottawa offerings, which uh, based on the write up stuff that didn't make it hasn't made it to the UK yet, and I'm very much keeping a keen eye out for some of them. There's a couple of films that I'm sort of salivating over, to be honest. And uh, there has been a couple of other festivals over this past weekend, actually. Like at the same time, there was this factual animation festival which mm-hmm. uh, had I known about sooner, I would have maybe tried to swing by myself because it seemed pretty good. And it's an area of animation that I, I, you know, find can be especially effective, which is, you know, non-fiction animation. And so there's, I believe by the time this podcast goes up, there'll be a write-up of that. But uh, by all accounts, it was good fun to... Uh...
1: Yeah, was the Factual Animation Film Fuss. Yeah, yeah. and
0: uh, also the Canterbury Animation Festival, or the Canterbury Anifest. Mm -hmm. That was this weekend, yes?
1: It was indeed, yeah. And our guest for uh, this podcast was uh, presenting there. It's the legend that is Peter Furman.
0: And uh, Dan Postgate, who I assume is Oliver Postgate's son? That's correct,
1: yeah. Um, So basically the the guys behind the old clangers and the new clangers. People who, shall we say, shaped uh, British children's television animation.
0: Oh, undeniably, yeah. I mean, he uh, and Oliver, I mean... Bagpuss, obviously, and the Clangers. Would you say those are the two kind of at the top of the leaderboard, or where would you say, like either the engine as well? Noggin' in the Nog, Pogleswood. Basically, everything that kind of had that perfect non patronising vibe. Yes, that was what I always sort of appreciated about that. Is I would you wouldn't sort of watch them because they never really made that many episodes of each. I don't think. Um, no, they were like the faulty towers of their day You'd see a few here and there over the years But it was one of the few shows that as I got older And obviously wasn't its target audience You'd come to appreciate just how much had gone into Writing something that children would find enchanting And, you know, not talking down to them remotely Yeah Which was something we talked a little bit about in the last episode I think that that's sort of something that I think stays with you a bit more, knowing that you're not being talked down to, even if just on an intuitive level. Like, there'll always be time for, like, you know, Dora the Explorer, I guess, (laughs) or whatever kids watch now. Yeah. (laughs) But I think the stuff that really kind of hits home, like, it's an interesting thing watching, like, my, uh, my little niece engage with a show like Dora the Explorer versus a show like Sarah and Duck. Mm-hmm. And how one, had, had, I think the, it's a much more enthusiastic engagement with Sarah and Duck because the absolute majesty and surreality and uh, splendor of that world and done so nonchalantly yeah. with a wonderful narration. Like that is, I think, the sort of closest approximation now in terms of its approach to a preschool show that people like Furman and Postgate were doing back in the day. And there are others, but that one comes more easily to mind because it's the one that she watches. <laughs> and so the quality of the stories and the puppets and the overall atmosphere, I think, was always a huge part of you know, what uh, what made these shows work so well. And definitely was retained when they did bring the Clangers back recently. Mm-hmm. Like, I, we watched a couple on the iPlayer or on whatever on demand it was on and the only thing that struck me was well it's it's brighter you know it's in HD and it's a little bit more colorful perhaps yeah but the overall vibe I thought was quite you know faithfully replicated or as faithfully as one could do uh, in this day and age
1: there's also less swearing in the new one Were they
0: downright gutter mouths (laughs) in the original one
1: (laughs) they were the original clangers uh they would actually write... It's the whole thing, obviously, for those that don't know, is whistles. So that it's all uh, produced through whistles. Um But they would write a script. So if a clanger speaks and says, Hello, little clanger, then it would be... Whoosh, whoosh, that's how they do it. And there's one uh, episode where the door sticks. And one of the clangers says... Sod it! The bloody door stuck again. <laughs> so, but it's it's basically all the post going. <laughs> so it's like it's it's, like, it's that kind of and and they got in trouble off the BBC for that, even though it was just whistling.
0: How could the BBC have possibly known what he was saying? <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's the BBC, Ben. Let's not trifle with them.
0: I mean, how did, how did anyone find that out? Like, he he must have presumably told someone.
1: Well, it was scripted, wasn't it? You know, so...
0: <laughs> they looked oh, wait, through so it. they actually had a script that... They had, that had a written? script that said, sod it. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, yeah. like, as a kid, it was a bit like trying to decipher what Kenny was saying. Yes, yeah, yeah. Like, back in the day, like, because they would put a lot, I think, of effort into, like, these these, you know... Gross little innuendos, and you could just about piece them together. I Like how we got them from the Clangers to South Park. <laughs> well, they're, they're both pulling the same nefarious skullduggery <laughs> <laughs> on unsuspecting viewers. Yeah. Well, good for that. I just like it even more now. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's it's a, a tremendous legacy. Absolutely.
1: Uh, well, they said they set a precedent, didn't they? Because we, I don't think we would have the likes of of, of Bob the Builder, of Sarah and Duck, of all these these shows that are distinctly British. Uh, children's preschool television animation. The parameters were set with uh, Postgate, with Thurman, with Gordon Murray, uh, who did all those kinds of films. And then obviously that led on to uh, Ivor Wood. And we began to build this television legacy, uh, whereas over in America, cartoons were were very much a completely different thing. And so you get this kind of this British voice and this American voice, and then obviously you get voices from around the world on children's television, but there's something very pure and distinct to British children's animation, and it does stem from uh, Postgate, from Furman, from Murray, and from Wood.
0: I think I heard that Shatner is like doing the Clangers, the new Clangers. Yes, it's Palin in England, right? And then they got Chatner to do it in the states. Yeah, yeah. That would last like twice as long though,
1: because <laughs> the way he pronounces everything. There's a
0: clanger on the wing of the plane. <laughs> Interesting when they kind of have to redub the voice when they export the mm. uh, the property, especially when you kind of catch it in the uh, in the states. Like I've seen Thomas the Tank Engine in Canada recently, and it's not Ringo Starr anymore; it's uh, George Carlin. George Carlin. <laughs> yeah wouldn't have put those two together, but there you go. That's not a joke, is it? Well, I wasn't ju- I may have heard wrong information, but I, I believe that's that was the case.
1: And does he, like, put capitalism to rights? And...
0: <laughs> he really takes down the establishment.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then Thomas said, there's no God. <laughs> <laughs> that's something I want to watch. <laughs> that's <laughs> what that is. <laughs> I know Piers Brosnan did it for a bit, didn't he? Piers Brosnan. Did I dream it? Or, I mean, that would have been a very specific dream, but, like, did Pierce Brosnan do Thomas the Tank Engine for a little bit? He'd be a
0: fit, I guess. I think that big actors, big name actors are rarely kind of snobs when it comes to universally beloved, you know, giant children's franchises that they'll usually take the plunge, and I think they assume that people won't, like, think any less of them for it. Like, Thomas the Tank Engine is a pretty huge old, like, children's institution. So that wouldn't surprise me. Mm. Is anyone who's ever done it any less famous than Ringo Starr?
1: Yeah, I mean, he was the star of Caveman.
0: And let's not go into being deserving of fame, but yeah, it's, in, that's,
1: it's an interesting one, really, isn't it? Yeah, I, 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 I used to love Thomas when I was a kid.
0: When I was a kid, I used to call the fat controller the f- controller. <laughs> <laughs> My parents thought it was delightful. <laughs>
1: I think that's why they changed his name to Sir Top
0: and Hat. Just because he. Well, they just called him Sir Top and Hat. Yeah. <laughs> that was another one, another sort of TV show that uh, definitely had staying power. Of course, that's Thomas the Tankin just had the kind of staying power where it's just had so many multiple variants and spin offs and things that it's still kind of going strong. And, like, you know, they, they make new versions of it every five minutes, it looks like. Whereas I think that, you know, the other shows, like the Furman and Postgate shows, they kind of. They remain kind of time capsules, with like the exception of redoing the Clangers. Hmm. Uh, I don't believe they ever kind of took a second swipe at Bagpuss, did they?
1: No, no. There was a, a, only a certain amount. It
0: was pretty much a one and done kind of thing. Yeah. And if you are listening to this and you're not maybe from the UK or maybe it passed you by, it's all good stuff worth checking out. Absolutely, there was a lovely book that Oliver Postgate wrote uh, before he passed away that went into. You know, it was it's you know autobiographical and it sort of went into a lot of the development of the shows and also his own sort of life and his sort of ailments and things like that. I feel like I brought this up before actually, but uh, it's a, it's a great read. I'm happy to recommend it again. It's called seeing things. It's just a lovely little memoir. So should check it out.
1: There's another couple of good uh, books on uh, small films, uh, postgate and Furman's company. Uh, one is the art of small films, which I wrote a review of on squiggly ages ago. It might have been one of the best art of books i've ever reviewed it might i say it might have been because i reviewed it straight after reviewing the uh terrible uh inside out art of book oh yeah uh, and then went straight on to this one so this was just <laughs> like a this was just sweet relief uh knowing that people can put together these wonderful books full of beautiful images and present the story uh in in such a you know wonderful heartfelt way. And it's, you know, it's got forward by Stuart Lee of all people who goes into this kind of, it fits it perfectly. It's such a a wonderful book. And uh, recently, if you're a bit more academic, um, Rachel Mosley's released a book called Handmade Television, which is stop frame animation for children in Britain from 1961 to 1974, which goes into the kind of, well, the handmade aspect of it and how we relate to it as kids uh, and the idea that we're watching toys that we could be playing with, or we're watching something we we feel we could bring a bring to life by by playing with it, and that kind of interaction, and uh, you know the pastoral elements to the, the the way that these shows are put forward, it is a you know it's an essential read if you if you want to go academic on um, on on uh, these these early uh, British uh, children's television pioneers.
0: I'm sure there will be people out there who absolutely would. I think that it's an area to definitely be proud of.
1: Uh, mm-hmm. well uh, a Squiggly Correspondent we sent to uh, Canterbury to, to interview the, the chaps uh, Neil Whitman is uh, doing his MA in that thing so this is going to be a fascinating interview I'm sure.
0: Here's Peter Furman and Daniel Postgate
2: Peter Furman and Dan Postgate, thank you for joining us quickly today. We're here at AliFest in Canterbury um, celebrating the work of small films. Um, What is it that you think makes your films still so popular over 50 years later? We're all still here talking about them. I
3: think think that the thing is that there's a sort of integrity to the the programmes where... um, Oliver and Peter, but particularly, I think Oliver sort of was quite unkeen keen for the, for everything to seem real, really, within the context of the fantasy of the of, of what is, they've invented. Within that, you know, everything's real. So the Clangers really do live on a planet. You know, they, they they've got their own ecosystem sorted out. They know where they get their food from. So everything makes sense, really. And I think you know, there's a feeling with the programmes that when the, the you know, when they it's almost like when they stop filming, you know, life continues, the pogrums go on with their lives and stuff like that. I mean I've always felt that, that was that there was a very strong sort of uh, integrity to what was going on, you know. There's a sort of conceptual integrity. This is what somebody said to Oliver, Hey Oliver, your programs have I think it's an American said, uh, Hey Oliver, your programs have <laughs> yeah. conceptual integrity. Yeah, and I the think they do. They're not they're not um they're not trying, to, they're, not, you, they're not winking at the tell, audience.
4: Tell the story of Oliver and me being asked about the clangers, where they, the child, because I mean the point is that Oliver did quite often get so involved with the stories he believed them, whereas I always felt these are just puppets, they're on, a, you know, I make this. So that story about the little girl who asked the question about so where are the clangers now?
3: Oh yeah, yeah, um, and um, Oliver said, "Oh, they're up there on their their planet, somewhere up in space, you know, going about their business." And then Peter interjected, "said No, they're not. They're in a they're in a, a tin box under my desk, <laughs> in my barn. <laughs> so
4: I can't really comment upon why they're popular. Sure. It's a mystery <laughs> to me. Mm-hmm. We did what we could to t- and we, in- we were enjoying ourselves writing, imagining things and, you know, writing and, and making all these things. It was like playing with toys for yeah. us. For me, I mean, Oliver had much harder job because he was creating more of the stories and things. But, I mean, for me, it was the best thing I could ever do want to do is making things which I've always done since I was a kid I mean I wanted to be an illustrator no I wanted to be an artist when I took the what they called the scholarship which was the 11 plus in when I was 10 I said I want to be an artist and that never I've never been any good at anything else anyhow so but I've always liked making things yeah and I can't tell I mean what people make of the things I make is up to them So, so when you were starting out I mean
2: there wasn't much point of reference as far as television goes, as you were saying. No, say, I was saying, when yeah. I
4: met Oliver, you know, I, we hadn't got a television set. No. It was so new. And that's why, I mean, it was, uh, I wasn't so keen, you know, it didn't, it, a little screen, a black and white screen in those days, a small one, with these rather uh, fuzzy pictures, I didn't really value it like I value, I've always loved books, illustrating my wife's a bookbinder, and we used to, you know, I used to collect books, so I've always valued that, and, uh, I mean, tele- we sort of grew up with television. Mm. As we worked in it, it got better and better and better, and then you started realising the possibilities. But did you find, um, or looking back now, was, was there freedom
2: because... There weren't regimented set rules that there are perhaps in television now. We
4: didn't follow any rules because there weren't any, as you say. I mean, there would have been if we'd have worked. If we'd have gone to work for, um, you know, Hand, what's called, you know, the man that did Animal Farm. uh, We'd have had to follow rules if we could have got the job in the first place. But because Oliver was creating this from nothing, I mean, I started making puppets. The first puppet I ever made, I, I bought a leather glove. And I built the puppet on the glove. And it was the uh, the little character that opened the musical box. He played a little concertina. And so I was making that up as I went along. And because I've always, since a a child, and my brother and I, we made things. I mean, during the war, we were making all our own things, you know, and making model aircraft. So I was quite good at making things, although never very good at technical side of things, but, you know, just like basic making.
3: And it was all really from um, necessity, wasn't it? Yeah. Necessity was the um, mother of invention or whatever, you know. Yeah. And so everything you did sort of emerged from sort of like um, necessity, really. Yeah. Even right down to the creative nuts and bolts, like you say, about um, either the engine being, a, you know, well, it hasn't got any legs, so it makes it much easier to animate. Yeah. yeah. So it's, yeah. Um, so people speculate on how things sort of crop up. But, I mean, often I think it was sort of like quite prosaic reasons, really, in the first place. You know. And people, didn't, and then,
4: then, people don't realise uh, you know, how primitive everything was in the 60s. I mean, the titles for... Um, I was talking about Robert Bolton, the series called The Miller and the Magic Trees. Well, I was saying I had to make the title sequence, which is used every week to open it. And I wanted it to be moving, but, I mean, we had no CGI or anything like that, so I had to make a cardboard animation of a mill I just had this mill with this wheel turning in perspective. Now you think of a wheel turning in perspective, trying to animate that with a bit of cardboard, but basically all I did was cut a curved slot, and I put parallel lines going up it, and they went like that. You know, it it was good enough then. So everything we were sort of experimenting, experimenting with at the time, you know, doing the best we could,
2: yeah. And you, you were saying uh, earlier about it, it was often budget constraints as well, you know. Oh yes,
4: I mean I was, I was quite lucky because doing the draw. I mean, we did comics as well. After the first programmes, we did we worked in comics, and um, Oliver used to write these things, and I had do a couple of pages of a comic to do every week, so I was earning that way, and uh, Oliver was struggling to make a living out of these sort of. Films, because, you know, the time it took and the paying of the other people and the sort of budget was very tight. So it was only after... It was only at the end of the century, really. It was only in the 90s that we started getting money back from repeats and uh, merchandising and that sort of thing. Mm. It was always, um, you know... We were always being constrained by the budget. And and you were talking
2: also earlier about... um, uh, using found objects and them having a life of their own, and Oliver believed in. Oh, yes, that, so yes, yes, I know what you mean,
4: yeah. Mm, mm. Mm. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I've always been very mean. I always sort of look around and see, what can I use rather than going and buying materials and make things from scratch? I think that the accidents that happen when you just look around and say, OK, there's a spacecraft, we want to make a spacecraft, and, uh, you know, it's on this planet. Rather than saying, I'm going to make it like this and I'm going to buy the music... I look around and I think, oh, there's a box there that's just the right shape with a, a, a perspex dome on top and that, you know, things that are around, and you put them together and you find this, this is what, not only is it because I'm mean, but it's also because I prefer to see things, you know, f, uh, you know, to use what's around and use your imagination to yeah. change it. And that encouraged viewers, I would say, as well, the children. Well, yes, exactly. To make yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, I mean, I... After all this, I mean, I, I got known as sort of someone who recycled a lot of things, and I wrote several books about making things, you know, collecting boxes and straws and all the things like that, and then mm. making a book of how to do it, teaching kids how to do it.
2: Mm. Mm. And Dan, to bring you in, um, uh, in 2014, uh, you brought back the clangers uh, for a new generation, and um, how important was it for both of you, really, to stay true to the original look and feel of the series and not just CGI oh very
3: important yeah yeah I mean I think everybody generally felt that way as well Mm. I mean the BBC certainly did Um, and um, and and Kulabai who we were working with as the um, sort of the the media company we were working with well keen to go along with what we wanted so as you know so yeah, no, it was very important for us. We wanted to sort of keep it much as, as it was as much as possible.
4: Um, it was driven by nostalgia in the first place, and then and it would have been totally spoiled if it had been suddenly put as CGI. Definitely, definitely. And people, we know how many people complain. I mean, in fact, even when it would, before it was made. People were emailing, uh, putting online, you know, comments like, oh, they're going to spoil the clangers, they're going to make it in CGI. Well, they didn't know, but I people think heart- assumed it.
2: I think your heart sinks when you're such a fan of the yeah. original. That Yeah, know, so it
4: was the nostalgia. We, we were insistent that, OK, maybe they can use a bit of CGI to, um, uh, for effects, which they need to do anyhow. And, and the whole principle of the problems of animating things flying through the air we couldn't do anything except hang them on strings. Yes. But then, of course, in factory they have an armature, which they lift things on and they delete it. Yeah. I
3: mean, <laughs> that's what mm. you can do with that, you know, yeah. the computer. And there's... Yeah, I mean, it's using using the modern techniques to the advance for, for, without it being intr- intrusive. You know, so there is a bit of CGI, and as I say, there's armatures that lift the clangers up and and bits and bobs, but we, you know, only if it's absolutely necessary with the CGI, we felt, you know, it sneaks, you know, even, yeah, I mean, it sneaks in here and there, so, uh, but yeah, no, it's important to keep it much the same, really, it's an interesting sort of thing in that sort of a lot of children's programmes that are made now sort of hark back to, you know, the, 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 the small films era, really, you know, um, already, so it's a curious sort of situation where we're sort of getting nostalgic actually in the TV, modern te- television programs that are made now, you yeah. know. It's, it's a, I don't know what the undercurrent of that is, it's an interesting thing to look into. Maybe, maybe old uh, um, you know, uh, Chris could uh, study that as well. Which <laughs> <Yeah>. is <laughs> sort of like, uh, where does where, where where what 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 point does it sort of nostalgia end? You know, where does it egg. start? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. It yeah. seems that par- you know, parents are sort of harking back to a, a pastoral sort of time, which maybe small films represent some oh, no way. They, but they're doing it now in the new stuff. You know, hmm. um, which is curious, really. But uh, you know. But, I mean, with the, with, uh, with the clangers, I think it was, uh, it was very important. The BBC had made a lot of programmes that they brought back, um, like Bill and Ben and Andy Pandy, but they changed them, you know, along the way. And I think that they, they, they didn't want to do that anymore, because no, none of those programmes really sort of quite hit the spot mm. and weren't, weren't particularly successful, I don't think. so. It was good for us to keep it exactly as it was, yeah.
0: You
2: know, yeah, it's great to see it as it was as well. It just really I mean, in um, there were obviously other very popular small film characters, especially Bagpuss, probably voted the most popular yeah, yeah, character of exactly. all time in 1990. I mean,
4: people have said, Are you going to make more? and yeah. Oliver and Oliver and I always said, Over our dead bodies. Mm. Well, I mean, um, I we um still feel like that, that we don't really want to. Um, other, the trouble is letting other people do the creative side you're then got to become a critic you've got to see what they've done and say no that's not quite right and I hate that I mean it's much better. We say, okay we'll have a go at doing it again, perhaps or that but we're, you know I'm too old and uh, um, you know I think we're, we're, we're sort of still in that situation where we think we're not going to make another like series, although there's still <laughs> We don't know. Yes. But maybe one day, really? but, you know, yeah. in the future, someone might sort of revive this character.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you both for speaking to quickly today. Anyway, yeah.
0: thank you. So thank you very much to Neil Whitman for talking to Daniel Persgate and Peter Furman there at the Canterbury Anna Fest. And that was uh, lovely stuff.
1: Nice to be taken back down memory lane there.
0: So what else is going on in the animation land? In animation land. I've been so close to, you know, the, the festival side of things and the new short films and my job that I've actually not really had my uh, my glimpses on the wider world of animation. Anything catching your attention? I could tell you anything now. I could. <laughs> oh my. It
1: was recently <laughs> announced that uh, The Lion King is going to get a live action remake uh, by uh, John Favreau, the director of Iron Man, uh, is going to uh, bring the film to the, to the big screen, but live-action, which doesn't make sense because I'm, I don't think lions and hyenas and warthogs have agents, so I'm pretty sure it's still an animated film, but it's just it's going to be heavily CG animated, so if papers could stop calling it live-action, that might be a good thing. I'm, not, I'm just putting it out
0: there. Yeah, seems like a bit of a miscommunication there. Yeah. So I don't know, would there be any, uh, would they actually go out then to the Desert Plains, and the jungle and film, just a bunch of backgrounds and then put animated animals on top of it or mocap or what do you know? Do you know anything about the actual proposed approach?
1: Well, uh, I think we can only really go on the Jungle Book, really. I think uh, the recent Jungle Book film is uh, is a, just a heavy CGI film. Uh, they, they filmed uh, the live action actor just sliding around behind a blue screen, uh, they build minimal amounts of sets, and then they just stick him with this kind of CGI environment, uh, with these CGI characters, uh, with the voices of, you know, superstars. So there's not an awful lot of live action to it. And I suppose when you take in such a big flight of fancy as, uh, you know, talking animals, it's better to do the whole thing in CGI, rather than do, (laughs) like, what they sometimes do... Do you remember when you were younger and they used to do like talking dogs or something on the telly, and they just kind of CGI like a little bottom lip going like like, and or they give dogs peanut butter so they're licking the <laughs> licking the lips so it looks like they're talking, and then they dub over it like in Wishbone or something like that. <laughs> like, so yeah, they have to obviously they have to CGI the whole thing, but people are are up in arms about this, Ben. They're absolutely furious that um, the Lion King is going to be. Uh, going to be redone in live action. Completely unaware that it's been redone in live action every night on stage for the last <laughs> for the last <laughs> twenty years on Broadway and at the West End. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's what we're getting. We're getting a new a new Lion King film.
0: So the animals are going to talk then, like. Well, I hope so. Well, they they could maybe give it a whole like uh, what was that film. I think it was a Disney film like uh the journey home or something. It was like a bunch of animals like Homeward Bound. Homeward bound, that was the one. They didn't talk in that, did they? They did, yeah.
1: Michael J. Fox was one of the voices and Sally Field was the cat.
0: Oh. Okay, I'll shut my mouth and
1: Maybe the original nineteen fifties version wasn't like that. I'm not entirely sure.
0: But- I think that's the one I'm thinking of.
1: Oh right, okay. I keep forgetting you grew up in the nineteen fifties, Ben.
0: The one I'm thinking
1: of is a pretty old film.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I certainly don't remember Michael J. Fox.
1: Was it Michael J. Fox? I'm not entirely sure. But I know it was Sally Field as the cat. It'd be
0: kind of funny to like just watch animals like as though you're watching a wildlife documentary, but they're playing out the movie The Lion King. <laughs> <laughs> but no one says anything. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and then in your second act, they just fart for a lot. Exactly. And Pumbaa. Yeah.
0: Movie magic.
1: It would be interesting. A lot of people have, have have really taken it to heart. It's quite it's quite bizarre that the 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 reaction of this thing. I mean, and a couple of weeks ago, obviously, we saw the Beauty and the Beast remakes started to show a few pictures here and there as well. Oh god, yeah. So Disney are really mining their uh, their back catalogue and, and remaking these things in in kind of CG, which
0: is fine, I suppose. Like as you say, I suppose it, it scratches a certain itch. Well, I applaud the um, the remake of Beauty and the Beast because it's going to terrify children everywhere. That. <laughs> Nightmare clock <laughs> Jesus Christ and the candle is just like you can't even tell which bits meant to be which it's just perpetually melting
1: I suppose it's more realistic though because if I knew that those characters were alive and living up in a castle I would be reaching for my pitchfork quicker than you can say shoddy CGI <laughs> I'd be I'd be straight up there with with firebrands and pitchforks I, I, i'd I'd gather a mob. It's it's in that way it is realistic. We'll we'll give it that.
0: No, fair enough. When they you know, when they're cute and doing their little songs and darts, you you can't really stay mad at them. <laughs> Self pouring teapot. Oh, when you know, when she shows up in the concept <laughs> art, that's going to be pretty nightmarish too. Full of scalding boiling water, burning her insides.
1: <laughs> Just stood there screaming. <laughs>
0: <laughs> her little cup. Son, just watching, crying <laughs> with His mother rise in agony <laughs> They should bring me onto these films To, you know, zhuzh it up To, to plasm I'd be like the Guillermo del Toro Of <laughs> Disney live action remakes Yeah More pain <laughs> Why is she not screaming? Well, I, I will reserve judgment, I guess <laughs> um, And then when the time comes When it comes out I will probably be as affected by it As I was by the... Uh, live-action Jungle Book, which was being vaguely aware of it. I will leave it to, to men and women more invested in the subject matter to give it a fair appraisal.
1: That's a good idea. If you love it, fair play. So, if you don't like the, the new Jungle Book or the new Lion King, there's always the old Jungle Book and the old Lion King. That's what DVDs are for. Exactly. Blimey.
0: Anything else, uh, anything else new happening?
1: Uh, well, old now. Adventure Time's finished. Or will finish, rather.
0: So will you, will you miss it when it's gone?
1: Well, I, I'm still catching up on it, so I've still got plenty to watch, but um, it's it's odd, isn't it? Will I miss it when it's gone? I suppose if you've got these sort of perfect episodes uh, captured and, and something, you know, comes to a natural conclusion rather than carrying on and carrying on and carrying on, then you get, uh, you know, bored by it. When we talked about um, Bagpuss and the Clangers and, uh, you know... Uh, Either the engine earlier on; those had a finite kind. There's a finite amount of episodes of those, like there is with Faulty Towers or The Office. And so you you tell every story that the world can deliver, and leave people wanting more. So not like The Simpsons, which carries on forever and ever and ever, and just keeps evolving with the times. And it isn't the original show that it once was. This story has happened, and the universe has been kept pure, shall we say. Uh, and the narrative has been kept pure and it's it's stuck to the right tracks and, you know, completely uh, bookended nicely.
0: So that's something I think we should strive for with the Squiggly podcast. <laughs> we need to find an exact right number of episodes and then leave them wanting more. Well, I think we've passed that point, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking something in the 400s. Yeah? Yeah, we're at, what, 60 now? So, yeah. Don't want to overstay our welcome.
1: <laughs> when would the 400th episode be so I can... Uh, I can plan.
0: I think we'll both be dead. (laughs) I think it'll be on its like third or fourth set of (laughs) co-hosts. So it will never die. Yeah,
1: so that's that's a sad thing. Uh, Adventure Time coming to a close. Time's up for Adventure Time.
0: No, we'll soldier on.
1: We will. We'll soldier on. We'll indeed.
0: Similar to Adventure Time wrapping up. Adventure Time, of course, when it does wrap up, it will leave a, a lot of people crestfallen. And Archer, it looks like, is also finishing. Hmm. So there you go. Anyway. Oh no! <laughs> to the you can't
1: leave. You can't leave on Ar-
0: Archer's brilliant. I mean, do you watch Archer? I like Archer. Oh, I love Archer. Oh yeah, it's funny. Archer, Archer's a great one to just sort of like bung on in the background. I rarely watch animation while working or doing something else because you kind of want to pay enough attention to what's going on on screen. Archer, not so much. No, I'm <laughs> I'm surprisingly cool with just letting it play out, and I I, I very rarely miss out on anything. Yeah, but very funny. It, no, it's
1: it it is it's good writing, Archer. Really, isn't it? Although the animation might not necessarily be spectacular, uh, it's done to a certain style which is evocative of this kind of odd world that it inhabits. Is it the modern day? Is it the '60s? It's like a kind of retro world.
0: Yeah, I I really enjoy Archer. Also, when it started, I remember it was very much a sort of time when. He was a lot less sort of like everywhere, mm. and back then he was basically just like McGurk, right? It was like, oh, okay, he's in another show, you know. So, yeah, <laughs> now he's kind of like you know, you hear him in like you know, pretty much everything that's animated. He'll show up. It seems like, like John H. Benjamin, yeah, or H. John Benjamin, H. John Benjamin. I've never been a hundred percent clear on which way round that is. I think it's um, yeah, it must but, be H. Uh, H.
1: John Ben John H. That's
0: Ben John <laughs> Henshman. yeah. So
1: we're, as as you can tell, we're petering out. Nice to end end on a strong <laughs> end on a strong note. We'll always
0: have the memories. We'll always have the uh the repeats and the DVDs. Oh. And I'm sure there'll be spin-offs and all sorts of wonderful things. And hopefully new stuff for us all to enjoy and for us to talk about on the podcast. That's what I think we've done rather effectively on this series is, you know, looking forward, looking back, and looking at the present and uh May it go for 60 more episodes, eh? Hooray! Hurrah! Well, thank you for joining us for the uh, for the first 60, or at least for this episode. I don't know if you've listened to the others. I hope you enjoyed it, and uh, I think, yeah, we'll bid you adieu until episode 61. Anything to add or plug or promote?
1: Yeah, just a couple of things to plug. I'm on the latest episode, episode 9, of the Starburst Film Festival of the Ray Harryhausen Podcast. Uh, talking about Ray's work. And there's also loads of other special guests on that particular podcast. Uh, It's hosted by John Walsh and Connor Heaney, and they do a fantastic job of delving through uh, Ray's enormous archive and uh, taking a look at some of his fantastic work. So it's well worth a listen. If you want to find out more about that, you can go to twitter.com, and it's at Ray underscore Harryhausen. There's also rayharryhausen.com as well. As we said earlier on in the show, the Manchester Animation Festival has revealed its full programme and tickets are now on sale. So you can find out more at manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk. It's taking place on the 15th, 16th and 17th of November at home in Manchester. So get yourselves down to the website to find out more. Also, if you're listening to this on the day that it comes out, there's uh, still space available on my course at home, which is uh, Animated Isles. It's a a weekly course which goes through the history of animation in the UK. Uh, It starts today, Wednesday the 5th of October, and runs for eight weeks Uh, There's also a couple of film screenings there which are available to the public as well. We'll be screening Animal Farm and we'll also be screening When the Wind Blows. For more details on that, go to homemcr.org and search for Animated Isles.
0: And as mentioned before, we have a write-up of the Ottawa International Animation Festival's 40th edition courtesy of Andy Jewell over on the site, and while I couldn't be there in person, I was happy to be involved in the celebrations in a peripheral sense. 40 animation writers across the globe were tasked with writing up each year's grand prize-winning films for a retrospective series. You can have a read of my contribution on the amazing 2013 winner Lonely Bones by Rosto over at the festival's official website animationfestival.ca. Rostow, of course, featured on episode 48 of the podcast, and if you missed that one, you should definitely go back and check it out. He's a fascinating fellow. On the subject of international screening events, my latest film, and Throw, is still out there. Those of you in Germany could catch it at the Filmzeit Kalfberen this Saturday, October 8th, as part of Film Block 5. That starts at 8pm at the Stadttheater Kalfberen. And the festival website is filmzeitkalfberen.de for more info there. And also between now and the next podcast, there'll be two more screenings in Switzerland as part of the Nuit du metrage tour, firstly this Friday, October 7th, in Fribourg, starting 8.15pm, at the Cinemotion Les Rex, then another one on October 14th in Moja at the Cinema Odeon, kicking off at 8pm. More info at nuitducour.ch. Don't forget, the first squiggly tie-in book, Independent Animation Developing, Producing, and Distributing Your Animated Films, is out now. Thanks to everyone who's picked it up already and been getting in touch, it's been a fantastic response so far. And now that it's finally in people's hands, I'll be preparing an assortment of supplemental materials that'll be going up at squiggly.co.uk independent animation. This is to build on the variety of areas the book covers over the coming months and years and serve as a kind of companion website for the book within Squiggly itself. You can buy the book from all prominent retailers or you can order it directly from crcpress.com. Our main website of course is squiggly.com, we're also on facebook.com slash squiggly magazine, Instagram at squigglyanimation, and Twitter at squiggly. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Ben L Mitchell, Steve is at Mr. underscore s underscore Henderson, and this episode's guest interviewer, Neil Whitman, is at NWAnimations. So thanks again for joining us for 60 smashing episodes of the Squiggly Animation Podcast. And until episode 61, happy animating.